so welcome. I got, oh, there's the time ticking, so I know we're good to go. So here we are, abnormal psychology, psych 213. Last time we talked, we uh, talked about what I call the prelude, if you will, to chapter five. So we started talking about stress and stress-related disorders. More specifically, we talked about two kind of groupings of disorders last class, and that was adjustment disorders, temporary conditions, usually only present while the stressor's there. Once the stressor goes away, within six months, they relinquish and they go away themselves. And then we talked about V-codes. V-codes, not really a psychological disorder, but areas of concern, like a flag on a chart that you would put in there, like, hey, you need to pay attention to this item. What we're going to do now is we're going to talk about the rest of stress and stress-related disorders. Um, V-codes are not stress-related disorders, but they are, I think, in some ways, stressors. So it's a good way to put it in there. But let's go ahead and talk about the rest of this. So just a little review. Let's define stress again, right? Um, a stressor refers to any challenge placed upon an organism. That's what we said last class, and here we are again. So a stressor, this class, um, I was telling the class before I started the recording, this classroom yesterday, we're right here in the fall in Pennsylvania um, in October, and it's going to be like 90 degrees today. It's just crazy. So this classroom, the temperature, the variations, it's a stressor maybe. Um, Physical and behavioral effects of stressors produce um, what's called the stress response, and that's our physiological response to stress. So we feel it both emotionally, we can feel it psychologically, we can feel it physically. And we're gonna talk a little bit about this stress response before we get into the rest of the disorders. So Hans Selle um, is uh, probably the person most associated with stress research. Um, Selle devised a, uh, a model in 1936 called the General Adaptation Syndrome, GAS. Sometimes it's called the General Adaptation Model, GAM, depends on the textbook you use. Um, and what Hans found was that when people are faced with a stressor, when they're you know, experiencing physiological stress, our body goes through three stages. So the first stage is the alarm stage. This is where our bodies mobilize the physical resources in recognition of a stress event. So um, let's use this classroom. Let's say that we're in this classroom and we start to see smoke roll in under the front door of the classroom, right? We can't see into the hallway, but we see smoke coming under the door. Our first response, our first physiological response is fight or flight, right? Self-protection, survival. So I look, I see smoke, I go, holy crap. What is gonna happen? Pupils are gonna dilate, I'm gonna start to you know, view, I'm gonna take more oxygen into my lungs so that I can prepare, prepare to run or whatever, you know, to respond in some way. So the alarm stage is the first stage where we really kind of kick into gear. We prepare for battle, you know, think sound the alarm. Second stage of this physical model, this general adaptation syndrome is called the resistance or adaptation stage. So on this slide, it just says resistance, but it is sometimes in some textbooks called the adaptation stage. And what this means is this involves using coping strategies to deal, develop with the ongoing challenge. So think about a stressor, right? Think about this. Maybe you decide to take five classes or six, let's just go six classes, right? Normally you take four classes a semester, about 12 credits. This semester you decided, I want to graduate on time. I'm going to really push myself. You're taking six classes, 18 credits. It's a lot of extra work, right? So you prepare at the beginning of the semester, getting excited about it. Ooh, I'm going to take it on. I'm going to graduate. It's going to be awesome. You know, four months and I can get out of here, right? 14 weeks and I'm ready to go. And then you start to get into the semester and the heavy workload is on you. And now you have to find ways to cope or adapt to the stressor. Does that make sense? So stress is really high. You find a way to function. You know, and you, you do a pretty decent job, right? You know, maybe sometimes you get pushed to your limits, but you still are managing, you're adapting, you're resisting the impulse to shut down because you're fighting through. You know, think about that fighting spirit. The third stage, however, is the one that bites you 
And that's what happens if the stressor lasts too long. If it's a prolonged stressor, if it's an ongoing day in, day out, day in, it's relentless, it never gives you a break. And that third stage, according to Hans, was the exhaustion stage. You can't operate on a high stress level indefinitely. Eventually, you break down. Your physical body, you're a machine. It would be like running at 100%. You're running your car, you're driving at a top speed all the time. What's eventually gonna happen? Parts are gonna break. It's gonna overheat, right? Without regular maintenance, you're really gonna struggle. So that's what this, this, this syndrome says. We mobilize, we adapt, and we cope with it. We resist the impulse to shut down. But if the stressor doesn't go away, we pay a physiological price, and that's exhaustion. Where the, the coping resources are depleted, the body starts to suffer permanent damage and death. In fact, that's what Hans said. Or Hans said. He said stress can kill you. It can cause physical damage to your heart, to your systems, and then the end result is you have a shorter life expectancy. And do, is that true? Do we know people with a high stress that do tend to have shorter life expectancies? Heart attacks, more frequency, some of these other kinds of physical illnesses happen, right? We shut down, our body just can't cope. So that's what Hans found. And this actually, 1936, you go, well that's like, oh, that's 100 years ago. Yeah, we still, still believe in this theory today, right? In 1956, he also distinguished between two types of stressors. Um, one's called eustress, that's E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, eustress, and that's the positive stress which um, activates an organism to respond to the environment. Getting excited about class, um, you know, maybe you're taking a trip and you can't wait for the, for the day of the trip to leave. That's eustress, positive stress. There's stress, you gotta pack, gotta get stuff ready, but you're looking forward to that moment. And then we have distress. Distress is the negative stress. It strains your ability to cope. So there is positive stress. In fact, what Hans said is, you know, we wouldn't do anything if we didn't have stress. Why did you come to class today? You don't have to be here. I'm recording this lecture. Why, why'd you come? You could look at the PowerPoint and do everything else. Oh, I take attendance. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe that's it. But you come here because you want to learn something. You have a desire. It's a stressor, it pushes you. You know, maybe you, maybe you exceeded the speed limit on the way to class today to try to get here on time, right? And if you did, why did you do that? You did it because you were stressed. You wanted to get here, but it's a good stress. It's not a bad stress. You know, and then think about a person who's in distress, down stress, negative stress. So, just ways to think of it. Now the stress response, and that's really what Hans was identifying here, is controlled by the autonomic nervous system. We know. It's that fight or flight system in us. And really it's the sympathetic or parasympathetic divisions that are taking hold in this circumstance. Um, so the sympathetic division responds to stressors, releases things like endorphins, uh, norepinephrine, cortisol, to help us deal with the stress, to help us cope with the stress and be able to physiologically take on the demands. Then after the stressor is passed and we start to resolve ourselves, we get back to our normal you know, pattern, then the parasympathetic division conserves and restores bodily resources. I like how that's phrased. The parasympathetic you know, conserves. It pauses, it slows us down. Why do I have to expel all my energy right now? I don't need to, it's calm. I only need to expel energy if I need to heighten it up when stress comes in. So think sympathetic stress, that's what kicks in, hormones that kick in to get us moving, and then parasympathetic pause, the ability to slow down. And one of the things that's really interesting is that autonomic reactivity, so this ability for the body to kick in and out of the sympathetic and parasympathetic divisions of this autonomic system, Autonomic reactivity could be genetically influenced in adaptive or maladaptive ways. And I like to think about this with um, my wife. I like to use examples of her in class. You know, if she ever listens to the recording, she'll probably be pissed, but I, I doubt it, right? 
you know, my wife. She's great. I mean, it's perfect. So autonomic reactivity, the reason why I bring her up is because one of the things when I met her is sometimes, and I think I've said this in other classes, she will get really anxious and she'll do something like take this extra breath. So she'll be sitting there, you know, and we'll be talking about something and all of a sudden I'll see her go, <gasps> and I'll be like, what's the, <gasps> you know, like what's that sound? What, why did you do that? I don't know, I took a breath. Well, why did you take a breath? I don't know. I'm feeling a little stressed out. Well, I know that her mother has an anxiety disorder. I know her grandmother has an anxiety disorder. I know our daughter has an anxiety disorder. So what is it about my wife? Well, here's what I think is happening. I think somewhere in her autonomic system, fight or flight, when she gets under stress, her body kicks in and wants more oxygen. So it kicks in for an extra breath. <sighs> to get prepared, right? But she doesn't need it. It's an almost overreactivity. It happens too quickly. Like if there's a bear running after her, getting in the extra oxygen, good idea. But when we're just sitting at the table talking about things, why do you need to, why do, you need to do that? And I don't think she can control it. Now what's really interesting is when I point it out to her, she goes, yeah, I must be stressed about something. And she thinks about it, then it goes away and it doesn't happen again. And ever since we've been talking about it, it happens less and less. So, is it semi-controllable? Maybe there's a tendency to quickly react, and maybe she has the ability to slow that down a bit. Maybe she can adapt that, but under high stress, she can't, and so the extra breath kicks in. So it's just kind of interesting, and maybe that's genetic. Maybe that was passed on, you know, because seems to be anxiety running through the family. I, I don't know. I don't know. And really, if we go a little further, there's some research that says that you know, we take that extra breath when our oxygen levels in our body seem to be lower. And so maybe somehow her body is, you know, has a, a too low of a set point for that oxygen level. And so that's why she needs that extra breath. Don't know. It's just kind of interesting. All right. So um, the nature of stress and their severity, right? Holmes and Ray in 1967 came up with a theory also about stress. And they talked about this idea that stressful life events could be assigned what's called life change units. So we could actually measure stressors in people's lives, assign a value to it, and then of course the more stressors you have going on, the higher your score, the more stressful life and the more impact of stress. Right? So here's just an example. Death of a spouse. Come on in. Death of a spouse was assigned a value of 100 units. So if you, in a 12-month period, had your spouse pass away, that's 100 points, life change points. Would that be important? Loss of a spouse, do you think that could really send you for a loop, right? So what if we had, like, your spouse was assigned a value of 100 units, so your spouse died in 12 months, within this 12-month period. Let's say that prior to their spouse dying, there actually was a divorce right? And whether you liked your spouse or not, there still is the loss, right? So maybe at a divorce, that's 73 points. Maybe someone in the family, not even you, but there was a pregnancy that's going to add stress to the family. There's 40 points. 23 points for trouble with the boss and 12 points just for Christmas. And you go, wait, wait, I am not a Christian. I don't believe in Christmas. I don't care if you believe in Christmas or not. You get 12 points for Christmas because if you've ever driven to the mall, during the holiday season, that's stressful. Even if you don't participate in the holiday, just trying to find a parking spot is worth 12 points. And what you do is you add up those points. The higher the point total, of course, the more the stressor. So there's about 40 plus life rated events. Point values could be totaled to determine the health risk of a person who faces all the combinations. So it's not one stressor. It's this stressor and that stressor. You know, when people freak out, like you're getting ready for work or school in the morning, you go to tie your shoes, your shoestring breaks, and you freak out and trash your house, right? This happens, right? You get out of bed, you step on the ground, and there's the, you know, the cat threw up a hairball, and you stepped right in it. It's like, oh, I don't need this today. And then all hell breaks loose. It's not the cat 
hairball that pissed you off. It's the cat hairball on top of work and you didn't hear your snooze alarm and then your shoestring broke and there was cold water and, and, and then you just snap. So they add up little stressors. A whole bunch of little stressors could be as impactful as one big one. That's where this model comes from. And then once you total it, what it says is if you get 300 points or more, you have a greater than two-thirds likelihood of a major illness within the next two years. Because, you know, you've got so much crap going on. I mean, look at that. This is, and so 300 is the cutoff. So a value of 100, let's, let's just use this example, death of a spouse, 100 points, then maybe you had a divorce, 73 points, that's 173, right? 12 points for Christmas, 173, 185, right? 20 points for pregnancy, 225, and then 23 points for, you know, points with your problems with your boss, so 225, 248. We're still not even at 300 yet, and that's a lot of crap to have happen to you. So 300, if you get over 300, and I used to do this. I used to have inmates in prison. We would do the life change units. And we'd have them evaluate. You know, so incarceration is worth so many points, believe it or not, just being incarcerated. We would add all that up. And usually when they would first arrive to prison, some people would have scores way up over 300. Legal troubles, loss of job. You start adding all that together, recent incarceration, separation from family. Those points add up. No wonder people struggle. And if you can't find a way to cope, it's going to wear you down, exhaust you, and you're going to... So you can actually put these two models together, the life change model, adding up of points, and then the kind of general adaptation model that consistent stressor over time breaks you down. So you can see how they fit. The nature of stressors and their severity, what we know is that chronic stressors generally produce more damaging effects on mood, health, and behavior because, and the reason why is because chronic stress, we're not sure if it will ever go away. We don't know when it'll stop. It's not clear if it'll ever subside or not. And the more severe, the more long-lasting effects. That's one of the things we have. Chronic means ongoing, chronic. Very intense acute events, like those involving a serious threat to life or physical trauma, can also impact your body in a very sudden way. It can cause destabilizing effects on mood and behavior. You're driving to school today, there's a car accident, your car is totaled. Maybe you're fine, but that acute stress event is definitely going to challenge your system, right? So it can cause destabilization of mood and behavior, greater chronic stressors, right? Because again, the greater the chronic stressor, the more this can happen. And then uh, can occur even when these events are just witnessed. Maybe you didn't even, maybe you weren't even in the car accident. You were driving along, and as you were driving along the highway, a, a deer ran out in front of the car beside you. It hit it, glass is flying, deer pieces. Boy, I went pretty graphic there, didn't I? Anyway, flying, right? You don't get hit, they pull over on the side of the road. I guarantee you, your heart is racing. Boom, 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 boom. Holy crap, that could have been me. Oh my God, I hope they're okay, mm -mm, right? It's the stuff that we do. So again, just witnessing it can have that impact. Now, there is a model I wanna talk about, and then we're gonna get into the disorders. Um, and I love this model. I, I just like it. I like the way it fits. It just seems to make sense to me. Now, I'm not saying it's the best model. I'm not saying there's not other models that are also awesome, but this one just seems to click. And so the diathis stress model is a very widely accepted model. It proposes that stressful circumstances can trigger the onset of a disorder in people who carry a predisposition for that disorder. So think about what that says. The diathis stress model says people are born with a predisposition. Maybe anxiety disorders run in your family, okay? That doesn't mean you're guaranteed to get it, but it runs in your family. You have a, a higher tendency to develop an anxiety disorder, right? The right set of environmental circumstances are going to trigger that. More likely in you 
because you have that predisposition than maybe me who doesn't have the predisposition. Make sense? You know, I, I can use a medical example. Let's say you have diabetes running in your family. It doesn't mean that you're going to have diabetes. But if you don't watch your diet and take care of yourself, you've got a higher likelihood it's going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be treated. We can treat it. But still, you have a higher likelihood. So maybe schizophrenia. You know, maybe something like even, you know, schizophrenia. Maybe you have the potential for schizophrenia in your family. Maybe you know, one of your parents has schizophrenia, you've got the gene or the series of genes that might be associated with you know, psychotic kinds of, of issues. And then what happens is, given the right set of circumstances, it shows itself or not. So the diathis stress model. And the diathis is this predisposition, right? And then of course stress brings it out. So, stressors may be involved in the expression of nearly every DSM disorder. Think about it. Any single disorder could be answered by having maybe being born with a predisposition and whether it comes out or not just depends on the right set of circumstances. We know schizophrenia, I'll use that as an example because I think it's a pretty decent one. Schizophrenia, we know that if one twin, identical twins, exactly identical genetically, Monozygotic. We know if one twin has schizophrenia, some research shows as much as a 48% or 50% chance that the second twin will develop it. Well, that's only half the picture. What's the 50%? What's the other half? That's the stressors in the life to bring it about. The trigger. Without the right trigger, it doesn't happen. But you have a higher likelihood. General population, like if you have schizophrenia, or what's the chances you'll develop schizophrenia just randomly, you don't have any background on it, about 1%. So definitely genetics comes into play, but it's not 100%, it's only 50. What's the other piece? It's the stressor, there has to be the trigger. So that's why I like this. Again, some disorders are so directly linked to a stressor that the presence of an identifiable pre precipitating event is a requirement of the diagnosis, but that's not always true in all of them. These ones, this category, stress and stress-related disorders, have to have a stressor present to trigger it. It's part of the diagnosis. So again, it's just stuff. And remember, there's some little video clips down here that you can click on. So here we go, here are the trauma and stress-related disorders, that's the category in DSM-5 that we're talking about today, trauma and stress-related disorders. And here are um, five that you see listed up here. The first one is reactive attachment disorder. And reactive attachment disorder, here's the key symptoms. In a child, because usually we see this associated with children, Reactive attachment disorder in a child, inhibited and emotionally withdrawn behavior towards adult caregivers with social or emotional disturbances relating to neglect or insufficient care. Reactive attachment disorder it has, it tends to have an onset, usually it says um, before the age of five, it's not really required, um, but usually we see signs of it. And, and what happens is in this disorder, these children usually have a history of neglect or abandonment issues, and so they really just kind of don't make connections. They think they don't form attachments with their caregivers. They're indifferent. So it's this detachment, if you will, you know, reactive attachment disorder, but it's a reaction to a breakdown in attachment if you want to think of it that way, with a caregiver in an earlier age. And now they're showing those signs now. You know, so the, the child's in there, it doesn't seem to matter whether their parent is in the room or not in the room. Most children cling to their parents, they, especially in stressful situations. They look to their parent, they use them as a home base. You know, sometimes when, you, if you've ever, uh, you know, had a young child with you and you go meet someone, they will almost cling to you when you first meet this stranger because they don't know who the stranger is. That's normal. They use you as a home base. And then they venture off but always come back. When my daughter was younger, we went to a father-daughter dance. Um, and it, it was great. There was all the dads there, right? My daughter was like six years old or seven years old. I think it was first grade. We didn't make it to the first one. 
Um, so we're standing there, and she's running around, right? And she's like, okay, I want you to stand right here. So it's right in the middle of the gym. The music's all playing. She puts me right in the middle of the gym, and she goes, I want you to stay right here. You're going to be right here? And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll be here. I'll be waiting. Okay, she runs off with her girlfriends. Like 10 minutes later, comes running back by. Am I still here, right? Hi, how are you? Good. You having a good time? Yep. And then disappears the opposite direction. I'm the home base. She needs to know where I'm at. And then she can venture off and then always coming back to feel secure. That's normal. But with reactive attachment disorder, it would be like it wouldn't matter whether I was there or not. They don't form close attachments. Because they've been abandoned and neglected so much, in some ways, that's, that system's been messed with a little too much. Does that kind of make sense? Second one that you see up here, disinhibited social engagement disorder. All right, so this is another childhood disorder. Remember in DSM-5, we brought childhood and adult disorders into the same categories. All right, so disinhibited social engagement disorder. A child, and it happens in a child again, um, approaching an interaction with unfamiliar adults in an overly familiar way or in a disinhibited manner. And this is also related to neglect and insufficient care. So the child could have a reaction one way or another. One way is to completely be detached from caregivers. So I don't associate with caregivers at all. It's almost like you don't even exist. With disinhibited social um, engagement disorder, I do just the opposite. I glum on, I stick to any adult or any person who will show me any kind of attention. Best example I have is in the film uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. I like to use clips from, you know, describe them to you. So in Pink Floyd's The Wall, you know, it's a fictional account of Roger Waters' life, I guess semi-fictional account, if you will. Anyway, Pink is the little kid. And the one scene that I, that I think best displays this, um, Pink's mom is kind of detached. She's neglectful of Pink. Uh, basically what happened was when Pink was a baby, his dad went to war, dad was killed at war, mom's left raising the kid by herself, she's sad about the loss of her husband, so she's detached. She's just not there, right? So they're at a playground, he's maybe seven, eight years old. And they're at the playground, mom's sitting on a bench kind of ignoring him, and he's by himself, he doesn't have any brothers or sisters, he's got no one to hang out with. There's a parent pushing her young son on the swings. Pink goes over and sits down beside. He tries to swing on the swing set, but he can't get it moving. The parent reaches over like any parent would do and go, oh, let me help you. Starts to push him. So she's pushing her son, and then she'll push Pink. And then she pushes her son. Just, you know, what any innocent person would do, right? You, you just would do that. Her kid gets off the swing, wants to go on the, you know, the merry-go-round or whatever. She goes, he hops on, Pink immediately follows, jumps right on with. They go to the slide. Her son comes down, Pink is right after her son so fast that she almost has to turn to grab Pink so that he doesn't run into everybody, right? It comes time for her to leave. She grabs her son's hand and she starts walking out of the playground and Pink comes up and shoves his hand in her other hand to go with her. And she stops and turns and says, no, 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 where's your mama? You know, go find your mother. And then starts to walk away and he runs up and sticks his hand in again. Most of us would be fearful, most kids would be fearful, but he doesn't, he's so needy for some kind of attachment and connection. He will glum onto anything and think about how bad that could be with someone who's not maybe the most responsible adult. So again, this is the problem. This is the, the kind of two extremes. Both are coming out of neglect, just letting you know. The next one down is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course, that's the big one when we talk about trauma and stress-related disorders. After exposure to intense trauma, recurrent recollection and distress related to the trauma with marked arousal. Right? And it's common. Usually it has to have occurred for at least, in fact, it has to, it's by definition, it has to have occurred for at least one month after the stressor. 
So I had a buddy, I'll use this one. We used to think it was called shell shock. We thought it only happened to soldiers. They used to call it in World War I, I think it was called soldier's heart. But what we know today is that PTSD can affect anyone with any kind of stress. Rape trauma situations can be that way. I had a buddy who was driving to a meeting, school meeting. He was on um, the 83 bridge near Harrisburg. And if you're familiar with that, that's a very high bridge that runs over top of the Susquehanna River. And it was rush hour, and he was sitting in traffic in a little Prius, you know, in a three, it's a six lane highway, three lanes each direction. He was sitting in the passing, the third lane over, the center, you know, mostly in the center. And a trailer truck, big hauling, you know, rig came behind him, didn't get stopped locked up the brakes, truck hit the median strip, and he said he could hear the cars behind him getting hit one at a time. Crunch, 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 crunch. Saw the truck coming in his rear view mirror. It hit his Prius and sent him spinning across the two lanes and off, almost off the end of the bridge, which would have been his death. Now, the car, of course, had surround airbags. He, he, he was pretty banged up. He was in the hospital for a couple weeks. But, I mean, he wasn't, it was more bruising and, you know, there was no major, they had to do some surgery, but there wasn't, I mean, he, he, he looks fine. If you saw him today, there's no, you know, lingering except for the stress. Because he would say, every time he would shut his eyes, he would see the trucks in the rearview mirror. He could see it coming. His body would instantly start to get heightened up. His autonomic nervous system would kick in. Heart rate would start to race. Right? He could hear the crunching of the metal. And he, could, he can't get rid of it. It's, a, it's, a mem it's an implanted memory, like a flashbulb memory. It's so impactful. And now it would keep coming back at inappropriate times. He'd just be sitting there watching TV and all of a sudden he'd just get this intense panic and he would see the vision of this truck coming towards him. And even now, driving, right, now he still drives, but it took him a few months. When he first got behind the wheel, he said he had a tough time even turning on the key because he was constantly looking in the rearview mirror to make sure nobody's behind him. He just, it just freaked him out. So that's PTSD. Tends to be more common in females, and you go, really? Well, because unfortunately, females tend to be the victim of traumatic events more often than males. We thought it only happened to soldiers, but now we know it doesn't. When we include all of the possible traumas that could happen to an individual, unfortunately, domestic violence, physical abuse, sexual abuse, oftentimes women are more commonly the victim than males. And so that's why you see that. I also think women are more likely to report it. I think guys suffer quietly. Um, my father-in-law is a Vietnam vet, and uh, for years, when I first met him, he was like, "I want to go back to I want to go back to Vietnam. I need to go back to Vietnam. Will you go with me?" And I said, "Well, what do you need to go back? I have to go back. And I don't know why he needs to go back, but there was something that he needed to go back for. Is that going to make sense?" Now he's older. I'm older. I don't think we could. He's kind of jokes. He says, "You know, I've pulled up picture after picture of where I was stationed at, of all the areas. It's not even anything like what it was like when I was there. It's so, so it's, you know, now it's more a populous center. There's, it's, it's not like the jungle he remembered. Does that kind of make sense? So now he doesn't quite have the same desire to go back, but there's something. And what's really interesting is he was a marine. Marines, of course, are you know trained. Our army, the, the top of the top, if you will." They can do almost everything, right? But he can't swim. Well, he could never have been a Marine if he couldn't swim. So something happened involving water, in my opinion, in Vietnam, that now, if he falls in the water, he just sinks. Don't know what it is. But he's not going to tell you what's going on. He's not going to share that. He's going to hold on to that. But it's getting at him. It bugs him. And I guess for years after he returned, he would you know, wake up and the sweats and everything in the middle of the night. And he wouldn't tell you what it was. But again, maybe it's too traumatic for him to even put into words. Don't know. I don't know. So I'm just guessing. But it makes you think. So again, PTSD has to be at least a month in order to be called PTSD. And you might say, why a month? Well, because we have another disorder that's also in this category. And it's called acute stress reaction 
or acute stress disorder. So after exposure to an intense trauma, reoccurrent recollection and distress related to the trauma with marked arousal, exactly the same description, but the key is it's less than one month. So if it's less than one month from the stressor, we call it acute, short term, because maybe it'll go away. My buddy, who was in the car accident, I don't know if we would call it PTSD, he drives now, I don't think that he has the same vision, but for a period of time afterwards, man, it was there, right? Now, it probably was longer than a month, so he probably did meet the criteria for PTSD, but let's say that the car accident, maybe it wasn't so bad, he wasn't put in the hospital, he did walk away, but it's still a traumatic event, and for the first month, every time he got behind the wheel, he would start to get anxious, then we might call it an acute short-term reaction. Make sense? Uh, again, more common in females, but for the same reasons as PTSD that I told you. And then the final one is adjustment disorder, and we already talked about that last class in our little prelude, right, in our lead-in. It says here, development of behavioral or emotional symptoms within three months of the onset of a stressor that also then goes away after the stressor tends to relinquish within six months of the end of the stressor. Now, it used to be that adjustment disorder had a six-month time limit, but now in DSM-5, remember, we took that out. Questions about any of that? So, I just explained all the disorders in this category. The next few slides I'm going to show you are just giving you more detail on all those. But essentially, we've just covered Chapter 5 and all we need to talk about is treatment. So we will make it through all the material today just to let you know. All right? Even though we're only on slide 9, you go, wait, slide 9 out of 37? Yeah. But I just talked about the next 15 slides, essentially. So just let you know. So let's go ahead and take a look. Right? Now, some of the range of stress-related disorders. Remember, we talked about bereavement last class. Bereavement is recognized as one of those other conditions uh, that could be the focus of attention, but it's not really um, a disorder yet. It is being a proposed category. We'll see how that works out. Again, adjustment disorder, which we talked about last class, so I'm not going to talk about it again because we already had that. And then these are the ones we'll focus on today. So acute stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, reactive attachment disorder, and disinhibited social engagement disorder, those two together because, again, they're both related to that abandonment. All right. So, acute stress disorder caused by a trauma lasts at least three days. So it can't be just like, oh my goodness, I had a near miss, or even I was hit, like yeah, I was sideswiped by a car, but three days later, I'm, I'm back to driving, and it, while it bothered me, I'm not, you know, I don't have these intrusive memories or anything like that. So notice it's similar to PTSD, but shorter in duration. And this is the key. It must include severe or traumatic components of symptoms. Because if not, if it's just, you know, a reaction to stress, maybe it's just an adjustment disorder. Remember, a temporary condition not so impactful where you're actually waking up screaming in the morning going, oh my God, oh, oh, oh. that's the difference. The traumatic events include exposure to war, both civilians and military personnel. Again, just witnessing wartime tragedies. Um, being the victim of rape or sexual violence, um, being a victim of a physical attack and or a mugging. So someone's attacked you, you know, um, being a victim of childhood physical or sexual violence. Remember, we combine children with adults in this. Uh, being kidnapped, taken hostage, uh, being uh, around or witnessing a terrorist attack, um, being tortured in some way. Even if it's just mental torture, you might go, well, that's, no, no, Those, that can happen too. That can still have just as impactful. It, it, mental, mental torture and physical torture still have the same end results. Um, natural disasters, being victims of natural disasters and or severe accidents. Um, did you guys see the news story about the tugboat that was caught in Dorian, the, the biggest um, hurricane? There was a hurricane off the um, east coast. It's way out to sea. Uh, Dorian is supposedly the biggest hurricane to ever be as far east um, that it was. A tugboat was caught 
19 on board, and three people were found two days later floating in a raft. Do you think just those three survivors, just being the result of that natural disaster, being caught in that storm and having the ship go down, that tugboat, do you think that could create PTSD-type symptoms? Oh, I guarantee you, right? And then many other causes, so you can kind of see. And this is what the diagnostic criteria looks like. Again, I'm going to do this for all of the PowerPoints. Um, it's really small print, so I don't expect you to try to read it off of here, but I include it for you to look at later. Um, rather than have you dig through a DSM or have you buy a DSM for this class, I figured I would try to put in pieces of that so that you could see them and understand what the diagnoses are. Um, you'll see the diagnostic criteria code is 308.3, and you might go, you know, do we have to know the code for the test? No, I won't make you memorize the codes. But if you work in the healthcare field, you would get very accustomed to it, and you would use the code so frequently that if someone said a 308.3, you'd be like, yeah, I know exactly what that is. You know, it's just a shortcut way. So again, uh, A, I'll just read it, kind of at least A, so you have a, a feeling for how it's worded, so you can hear it kind of in your head. So A, exposure to an actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violation in one or more of the following ways. Directly witnessing a traumatic event, directly, ex oh sorry, directly experiencing the traumatic event, witnessing in person the event that has occurred to others, learning that the traumatic event occurred to a close family member or close friend, and in the case of actual or threatened death of a family member or friend, the events must have been violent or accidental. So again, it could be a violent death. You found out your loved one was murdered. You go, um, I still remember um, the phone call. It was kind of interesting. I uh, was just talking about this recently with a, a colleague. I still remember the phone call when my brother was killed by a drunk driver. I remember waking up in the morning, it was 9.30 on a Saturday morning, and I remember you know, my father being on the phone and said, David, and I said, yes, and he said, uh, I need you to come home. And I said, okay, you know, you know, what's going on? He said, uh, you know, Sean, your brother's been killed. I said, okay. I hung up the phone, my wife rolled over and looked at me and said, what's going on? I said, we have to go home, my brother's been killed. That's it. It was kind of a quiet morning in the house throwing stuff in a bag. What's the details? Don't know. Doesn't really matter. So, of course, that was the, you know, the, the sudden shock, if you will. And I would probably argue that I, I probably did suffer from acute stress disorder for a period of time after that. You know, I know that I felt numb for a period of time. Um, it wasn't really witnessing, but when I heard the details of the accident that had occurred, um, they were pretty graphic, and, and I don't want to go into all those details here, but um, it was a pretty horrific scene from what I understand. So just hearing and knowing that your loved one was the person involved in that can be the trauma. Um, the next one, experiencing repeated or extreme exposures to adversive details of a traumatic event. First responders collecting human remains after a, an airplane crash or something like that. Or you know, those first responders that showed up to 9-11. You know, and then coping with the aftermath and the scene. And, you know, imagine all of the sensory experiences. The smells, the sounds, you know, people crying, sobbing the vision, the disbelief that you see as you look around, you know, remembering maybe what the place should look like and then what it looks like today. So you can see how that could really almost just impact you beyond your ability to cope. With the rest of this, again, I, I like to say that the DSM is much like a cookbook or a you know, checklist. So that, you know, part B, it says the presence of nine or more of the following symptoms of any of the five categories of intrusion, negative mood, disassociation, avoidance, arousal, beginning or worsening after the traumatic event. So again, we have these different categories. Intrusion symptoms, like um, again, memories that are distressing that keep coming back. Um, distressing dreams, dissociative reactions, flashbacks, right? Negative mood, persistent negative mood, an inability to experience happiness. Dissociative symptoms, an altered sense of one's reality, feeling like you're in shock. I, like I said, that morning, we didn't do much talking. 
I just remember taking my shower, getting my clothes together, climbing in the car and driving four hours home. And it was a quiet ride. And again, you know, what do you, it's just your ways of coping. Um, avoidance symptoms, you know, uh, efforts to avoid the distressing memories, thoughts, or whatever. Um, avoiding external reminders, not wanting to get behind the wheel because of a car accident that you were in. Arousal symptoms, sleep disturbances, irritability, hypervigilance, problems with concentration. So you might go nine symptoms, that's a lot. Yeah, but they can add up pretty quickly. And again, if it's less than nine symptoms, that doesn't mean you didn't have a stressor. It just means that maybe it's still within your ability to cope. So that's what we're talking about. Um, and then we have further criteria. I'll just use this as an example. I won't read all of them to you, but um, C, duration of the disturbance is less is three days to one month. Um, the disturbance is causes, or causes significant, clinically significant distress or impairment, again, in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. It's got to cause you some kind of disability, some kind of distress. And then the disturbance is not attributable to maybe medication. This isn't because of substance abuse. This isn't some kind of withdrawal symptom. It's not because of a medical condition or it's not better explained by brief psychosis. That would be where you have a stress reaction but you lose touch with reality. That's a more, that's a more, I, I don't want to say severe, but that's the best word I can come up with. It's a more severe diagnosis, you know, where you're losing touch with reality. So again, if that's what it is, we're going to call it that. We're going to call it brief psychosis um, rather than acute stress. So again, there's this kind of checklist. You go through, you know, what's going to make it acute stress versus something else. And the more rigid or the more that you stick to this criteria, the more accurate the diagnosis. So just to kind of give you an idea. Um, just to do a comparison, um, there's ICD-9 codes. And ICD-9s are, are codes from the International Classification of Disease. Um, and that's the diagnostic guide that's published by the World Health Organization. Not by the APA, but by the WHO. Um, right now, we're using the ICD-10 ICD codes they were actually published in 1992. So there's some anticipation that they're going to be updated and there's a draft right now, I don't know if it's been approved yet, of the ICD-11 codes uh, because it has been, what, about 27 years. Maybe it's time for an update. And here's what the 11 code says. You can see it's, it's going to be just a little different. It's not quite laid out like the, the DSM is. So here's this quote. Um, a, um, acute stress reaction, that's what they call it. Acute stress reaction refers to the development of a transient emotional, cognitive, and behavioral symptoms in response to an exceptional stressor, such as an overwhelming traumatic event or experience, involving serious threat to the security or physical integrity of an individual or a loved one. Or an unusually sudden or threatening change in a social position and or network of the individual, such as loss of a family member in a natural disaster. The symptoms are considered to be within normal range of reactions given the extreme severity of the stressor. So this is a normal reaction, but it's an extreme reaction, but the stressor's extreme. So it makes sense that you would have this kind of response, but it's still an area to be concerned with. Does that make sense? The symptoms usually appear within hours or days of the impact of the stressful event, typically begin to subside within a week after the event or following the removal of this threatening situation. So you can see it's just a little different, a little bit more descriptive, if you will, a little less maybe mechanical, medical, uh, it's something to think about. Okay, and then of course the 10, this is it, I won't read this to you, but you can kind of see actually in the ICD-10 code, they actually have a little bit more descriptors of physical things. Like here's what it says, the symptoms show a typical mixed or changing picture and include an initial state of daze with some constriction of the field of consciousness, narrowing of attention, inability to comprehend stimuli and disorientation, 
The state might be followed by further withdrawal from the situation, by agitation or overactivity, and the autonomic signs of panic anxiety are commonly present. So again, you can see a, a very good descriptive. Some people believe that the ICD-9 and 10 codes, or now we're at 10, 10 and 11 codes, are actually more useful in clinical settings because they have more descriptors of what you might see, while the APA codes are more helpful in research and theoretical kinds of discussions. So it's just kind of interesting. All right, so there we go. Now let's talk about PTSD, so that's acute. We're gonna talk about the treatments all together. Um, and again, I'm not gonna read all those descriptors to you on every single slide. I'll let you look them over, but we'll just give you the generals. So PTSD, caused by stressors that are so intense, they would cause maladaptive reactions in anyone. Anyone who's the victim of a rape situation could be pushed beyond their limits. Anyone in a war-torn situation. I, I share about my father-in-law. Um, he does tell me about when I, I think, this, there's, think this is the start of the of the reason for the lack of being able to swim and everything, tells, told me about one time they were camped and there was a monsoon that came in and they had to move to higher ground immediately because flash flooding was occurring and one of their, one of the individuals in their, in their uh, I can't think what the word is right now, help me, team, not platoon because they were a, a smaller group of about 10. Anyway, right? One of them with their backpack on got swept away because they sunk down in and they couldn't, couldn't get to them. Now, I don't know if they eventually got to them. Father-in-law didn't go into more details than that. But I wonder, remember this fear of water, this inability to swim, I wonder how much that may, maybe there's something more to it. I don't know. I'm sure there's some stories. Make sense? So again, um, that they could cause maladaptive uh, reactions in anyone. They involve a threat to life or physical integrity. The reaction is intense fear, helplessness, and horror, usually is what you see from PTSD. And not only does it involve intense reactions to the trauma, but reliving the event through intrusive and reoccurrent thoughts, images, dreams, and sometimes even hallucinations. So again, this is an impactful, this is life-changing. That's how impactful this is. And remember, it has to be present for how long? One month, minimum, right, at least a month, because otherwise it's acute. Now we're PTSD, okay? And then here is, again, from the DSM-5, um, just, again, the, what you would take a look at or, or how you would use it and how you would um, kind of determine whether the person is suffering from it or not. Um, it's pretty much, the same stuff we talked about before, except now we're in longer duration and more intrusive types of symptoms. Questions about that? Is that okay that I just kind of skimped over that and let you look over that on your own? Okay. So. Now, let's talk, talk a little bit more about, um, again, children. These, we know that with PTSD, these criteria do apply to adults adolescents, and children over the age of six. Um, DSM provides some modified criteria if the child is under six, because again, maybe they don't have the same kind of dream states or the other kind of responses. At six years old, do I fully realize something that's unreasonable or not unreasonable? I may not have that experience to base it on. So there's some adjustment. Notice it says post-traumatic stress can begin at any time after one year of life, and the lifetime risk by age 75 is 8.7. So there's an 8.7% chance that you could experience before the age of 75 a PTSD-type situation or scenario. Um, again, the difference between these two, between acute stress disorder and PTSD, all it has to do with is this 30 days persistence. Now you might say, well what about the person that maybe was abused as a child, they never dealt with it, and then all of a sudden as a young adult, all of a sudden the abuse comes out and now they're having flashbacks and everything. Well we can put this on, we can put with delayed expression, meaning that you were the victim, but you didn't show it within a month of the stressor, 
Instead, it may be years later when it comes out. So again, we can do that. Um, it's just kind of a little clarifier that maybe this is way back in the past as opposed to more recent. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, just share this about soldiers, right? The incidence rates approach about one-third to one-half of victims uh, found among rape survivors, military captives, political prisoners, and targets of genocide. So you can see that, again, being the victim or, or being in that role, being placed in that role can really increase the likelihood of this because, again, we're not just military focused anymore. Notice it says about one half of victims recover completely within three months. Within three months. So even my buddy, and I would say he meets that criteria, who was in that car accident on the Prius on the bridge, within three months he was back to work, he was driving, he had bought a new car. I asked him if he was buying a Prius again, he actually bought something with even higher safety record because he said, I, 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 want a, I need a bigger car. I didn't feel comfortable in the little car, so he wanted something now bigger just because he just wanted more substance, right? But within three months, he's driving again, back at work, you know, kind of uh, getting on, on the mend and everything. So again, normally, we don't have those long, long lasting. It's just when it's incredibly traumatic. That's why soldiers seem to be really impacted. I mean, seeing death and things like that on the, on the battlefield, so. Um, treatment for severe stress reactions. We can use crisis intervention. Um, quick emergency assistance in traumatic events seems necessary to blunt or avoid serious psychological reactions. So the quicker that you have that discussion, the better. Um, but there's little or no support for its effectiveness in research. And the benefit is difficult to discuss. And you might go, well, so it, it looks like it be, could be helpful, but we really don't have a lot of research to support that idea. But in, in, in idea, like in this idea that if we talk about it and try to get it out and try to work on it earlier, maybe that's going to help minimize some of the long-term impact. Um, I had a student, trying to watch my stories because I don't want to go over. I had a student who, uh, um, when I was teaching this class, Abnormal Psychology, at another campus maybe about 15 years ago, uh, called me up once. I was teaching as an adjunct, as a part-timer, and I was working in the prison. And she called me up at the prison and she said, um, it was over the summertime. She said, are, are you, you know, David Bailey that teaches at Hack Lebanon? And I said, why, yes, I am. She goes, well, I was a student in your class in the spring, and I'm wondering if you have a moment or two. Can I ask you some questions? And I said, sure. You know, I'm at work. I'm working in the prison. I, it doesn't matter to me, right? So she started to talk. She said, over the weekend, there was an accident near my, my house. I live in the country. I live on a farm. It was a very sharp 90-degree um, turn at our property right beside our barn. Uh, a motorcyclist was coming down the road, got into the gravel, missed the turn, hit the fence around the barn area and was decapitated. She said, I was the only one home. I heard the sound of the metal. I ran out and I was the first one on the scene and all I hear in my head is this gurgle sound. And I just keep picturing the person laying on the ground. I didn't know them. They were a stranger. I didn't know anything about them. I'm just not sure how to cope. And it had been about a week. So we had a pretty long conversation. We talked for about 15, 20 minutes. In the conversation, I found out she was going to be a nursing student. She had friends who worked on, uh, as first responders on the local volunteer fire department. I said, give one of them a call and ask them if they can do a kind of a critical incident stress debriefing because that's one of the things they will sometimes do with EMS workers after their first call. If you ever decide to be an EMS worker, when you're a first responder, your very first call will impact in your memory. You will never forget that because there is nothing that can prepare you for what you'll see, nothing. So I said, go talk to them and see if they can, you know, just have a meeting, just to talk about your feelings, get it out. Right, and then give you some, some strategies, some ways to cope. She did that, contacted me a couple weeks later, said she was feeling much better, the memories were not kind of there, and that having a conversation with other individuals who had kind of experienced trauma like that was helpful to her. So again, this is one of the things that can happen. We know that it, it can be beneficial, but everybody's different. We can't guarantee that it's going to work, but it can help. So in her case, it did help. Um, 
The one caution, though, is you can't encourage the discussion too soon. You know, it had been about a week between when her and I talked, and by the time probably she got to meet with her friends, it was probably maybe another couple days. So it wasn't immediately afterwards, because then it may have been too to even process, too overwhelming to even process. So the idea of talking about it a couple weeks later made sense. Just sharing that. Some other treatment approaches for severe stress reactions. Cognitive behavioral therapies. And I'm a very big believer in cognitive behavioral therapy. The basis of cognitive behavioral therapy is that thinking affects behavior and that behavior affects thinking. If you change one, the other will follow, right? So um, these tend to be the best and they involve a combination of stress management and in some ways re-exposure to the stressor. And you might go, wait, what? Well, talking about it, getting it out, processing it in some way. So the first one you see here is cognitive restructuring, re-changing the way you thought about the event. Thinking, cognitive. Habituation approaches to lessen the stress or emotional response. Maybe the more you talk about it, the less impactful it is. The more it steals away some of the emotions. So talking about it, getting it out, not holding it in. I really want my father-in-law someday maybe to sit down and have a conversation with me. I'd really like to be able to figure out what is the underlying cause of that. And maybe someday he'll feel comfortable enough that we can have that conversation. Um, stress management through physical or psychological methods also can be helpful. Because remember, this is stress related. My body is responding to stress. So if I can find ways to cope, it's going to better it. Um, stress management may include systematic desensitization. My buddy who was in a car accident, when he first climbed behind the wheel, I'm sure he, he probably almost had a panic attack. But let's get you behind the wheel. Let's break down that panic attack systematically, step by step, closer and closer to getting back on the road, to getting back driving again, whatever it might be. Re-exposure often does in mass trials in which patients confront either actual or imagined scenes containing the most terrifying aspects of the trauma for a long period of time. This is called flooding. This actually is rarely done. To flood someone means to, like, you, fear factor, you're afraid of snakes, and if, let's say you had a phobia, and you're afraid of snakes, then I just uh, cover you with snakes. That's flooding. Overwhelm your system. And of course, you won't die, maybe. What if you had a V code that you had, you know, uh, a weak heart that probably would not be the good treatment approach to use flooding, but you can see how that could go awry very quickly. Uh, but again, getting the person to re-expose, to rethink about it, to talk about it, get the dreams out, maybe talk therapy or, or look at pictures to try to, here was the accident, but you walked away. Let's put it into, let's reframe it. Let's rethink it in a different way. Um, this is another one. This is what the military uses. It's kind of interesting. We don't fully know how it works or why it works. It's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, uh, EMDR. So what you do is you have patients track a moving object like a therapist's finger with their eyes while recalling the most distressing events. So it's, I think it's almost like a form of self-hypnosis. So I've got a pen and I'm standing in front of you and I want you to think about the event and just you know, keep your head face straight ahead and follow my finger to the left and to the right and tell me about the events. By doing this, it removes emotion but allows you to talk about it. So it, I'm wondering if that's the process. Almost like a self-hypnosis. Detaching you, breaking that bond between emotion and the, the visualization of the event. So again, we, it seems to show some, some promise and, and we are using it. Some minor tranquilizers, we could use medication. Again, stress reactions oftentimes have anxiety and depression as some side symptoms. We could use tricyclic antidepressants. Um, minor tranquilizers by, like benzodiazepines. The problem with benzodiazepines are um, they, uh, they actually can be addictive and not as helpful as you might think. People want, I just want to get rid of the anxiety, just give me a minor tranquilizer. Mm, yeah, really not the best effective method. Again, tricyclics are better. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, also are very good choices. Um, one of the things that we see is notice it says discontinuation rates 
for pharmacological treatments are higher than those for CBT. What does that mean? That means that when you stop the meds, the chances of it coming back are higher if all you did was meds than if you talked about it. Again, CBD or CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is the best approach. Um, reactive attachment disorder, I already talked to you about these, but I'm just going to talk to you kind of briefly about them, and that'll wrap up the PowerPoint. I know we're a few minutes over, but if you just be patient, I appreciate it. So reactive attachment disorder um, used to be under uh, disorders usually diagnosed in infancy, childhood, and adolescence, does not result from a trauma. That's one of the things I want you to know. It says, does not a a result from an intense trauma or identifiable stressor, but does result from a history of neglect and substandard care. Onset before the age of five, with reactive attachment disorder, we have inhibited and emotionally withdrawn behavior towards caregivers. And again, it's a rare condition. Notice what it says, even in severely neglected children, in severely neglected children, it only shows up about 10% of the time. So these would be the ones that are most susceptible to it, still only shows up about 10% of the time. Um, again, here's the DSM uh, di- or description of it, so I'll let you take a look at that on your own. The other one is disinhibited social engagement disorder. Again, that's the flip side, if you will. Previously, believe it or not, it was part of reactive attachment disorder. You would just have reactive attachment disorder, one extreme or the other. Here, we separated them out and actually gave it its own name. Right? Again, doesn't result from intense trauma or identifiable stressor, but the result of a history of neglect and substandard care. Again, onset before age five, because it really came out of reactive attachment disorder to begin with. Approaching or interacting with unfamiliar adults in an overly familiar way. In other words, glumming on like my example from Pink Floyd's movie. And that overly familiar behavior with relative strangers violates the social boundaries of the culture. So we do take a look at culture in here, like the cultural expectation of how should a child respond to strangers, and is this person really just extremely uh, too far, right? Making attachments. These children are inadequately cautious um, in approaching unknown adults, showing indiscriminate sociability, a lack of selective choice in attachment figures. As preschoolers, children with disinhibited social engagement disorder continue to show that pattern with adults and peers. So it might even continue on, even beyond the caregiver into the school. Now I have this tendency to just fall in love or become attracted to anyone, anytime, every time, everybody. Again, it places me in a role that could be possibly victimized if I don't re, you know, correct that in some way. And they, notice what it says, it says later, Um, Some receive a comorbid diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder as well as cognitive or language delays. So think that impulsivity to glum onto or make attachments. It's almost maybe even not just with attachments but also can transform into behaviors where I can't even control my behaviors. And then again, here is the description for the DSM-5 for that. Any questions about that? You might say, what about treatment for that? Well, we're going to go right back to cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Working on the thought patterns, teaching social skills to children to be a little bit more cautious, to try to establish some healthy boundaries, role play, social skill training, things like that. So any questions about this? Thanks for listening, and sorry I went over a bit.